Well, good morning again, church. It's a joy to worship. So this morning, as we just said, we do begin this new sermon series, The Christmas Story of Redemption. And we do this, of course, because now that Thanksgiving is over, it is Christmas time. But mainly, we do this because I think as we talk about and celebrate Christmas this year, it'd be great for us as a church to see two things together in this series, two things. And first, as you can see in the series subtitle, what we'll be doing in this series is we'll be focusing on the overall story of the Bible. And that's why the series is called The Christmas Story of Redemption. And that's because, as you might know, often when people summarize the story of the Bible, it's called the story of redemption. And so in this series, we won't just be talking about Christmas, but mainly we're going to be talking about the storyline of the whole Bible. And so that's the first reason we do this. And on this, I also hope that this series may be especially helpful to some of you who perhaps have always wondered if there was a simple way to understand and summarize the whole story of the Bible. And as I was coming here, honestly, as your new senior pastor, uh, I knew that at some point this was something that I was hoping we could go through together because it's so important and helpful and a blessing for us as God's people really to know what this book is about. And so that's the first thing we'll be doing at the series, looking at the whole story of redemption, which is the story of the Bible, which also is the story of our universe. But then second, we won't just be talking about the storyline of the Bible in this series, but we'll be relating the whole storyline of the Bible each week to Jesus himself and even to Christmas. And of course we do this because it's Christmas time, but more importantly we do this because as we talk about the story of the Bible and the story of our universe, Jesus Christ must take center stage. So that's our series, The Christmas Story of Redemption, which will bring us in a minute to our first message on creation. And yet before we do get into that, since this is the first message in this series, let me just share with you the classic four-step summary of the storyline of the Bible, because this will be our rough outline and layout of our weeks together. And if you've ever wondered how you can pretty quickly, but also really profoundly summarize the whole story of the Bible and of the universe, it's with these four points. And the four points are creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And perhaps you've heard that before. I hope, I hope you have. But that is the storyline of the Bible and of our universe in a nutshell. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But to explain these a little bit more, here's what these mean. First, which you'll see this morning, is creation. Creation, and this is the most obvious because it is the beginning, both of the Bible and of our world. But as we'll see this morning, there's more to this than just saying that this was all created. We'll talk all about that in a minute. So that's the first step, creation. Which then leads to the second step in the storyline of the Bible, and that's the fall. The fall. And, and this is a crucial part of history, and in many ways... I hope you know that this is really what sets us apart from so many other faiths and worldviews. And we'll talk about this more next week, but this step in the storyline is important because the fall essentially is saying that there was a point in history when, in this universe when sin entered, when humans rebelled against God, where human death entered this creation and nothing has been the same since. Which then leads to the third step in the story, which is found in the majority of your Bible. And so we got creation, the fall, and now the third step is redemption. 
redemption. And what is meant by redemption is that in the storyline of the Bible and of our universe, God, who created all this, then made a plan to redeem it, this world and people in it. And redeem in this context most simply just means to, to get it back, to make it right again. And so that's the third step in the storyline of the Bible. And this includes things like God's plan, initial as he was starting with Israel in the Old Testament, then his promises, and of course it comes to fruition in the gospel of Jesus in the New Testament. Which leads to the fourth and final step in the storyline of the Bible, and this we can call restoration. Restoration. So creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And the reason this word is chosen is because then this brings the story almost full circle in a way. Because the idea here is that God did what needed to be done to redeem. And now he's restoring it back. And he's promised that one day he's going to finally and fully restore it back to how it was meant to be, but even better. As a quick side note, knowing that this restoration is the last step in the storyline of the Bible and not say just heaven is actually really helpful. Because in a lot of Bible-believing churches, especially in the last hundred years or so, so many of us are taught and so we're kind of prone to think that the last step in the Bible and in God's plan is heaven. But in your Bibles, that's just not true. And not only is it not true, but honestly, that truncates God's purposes and his plan. Because God's plan never was create a universe that falls, redeem that universe, and then restore and save people in heaven. Instead, it's always been create a universe. It falls, redeem that universe and people in it, and restore that universe forevermore with those people that are saved in that universe. Now it is true that for those of us who know him, when we pass away for now, we will live with God while the story unfolds. But in the end, God's plan is his people living in a restored universe in the way that it was meant to be, but better forever. So that is the storyline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I keep uh, repeating it because I do encourage you to memorize those four steps. Because they are so helpful, not only in explaining the Bible to others, but more importantly for yourself as you are reading the Bible or as you're thinking about God's plan, or as you're thinking about Christmas and where it fits, or as you're thinking about your life and where you fit, thinking about this framework, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, will help you understand what God is really doing in the universe and in your life. And understanding that you'll be able to trust him and what he's doing a lot more. So that's our series. And just to be clear, we won't do a summary of those four steps in every message, but I hope we're now on the same page. We're talking about the story of redemption, and that's it in a nutshell. And for this series specifically, though, we'll be relating all of that to Christmas. Which finally brings us to the first step of the story, and that's creation. And for a brief outline of our time this morning, we'll have two sections. Two sections. First, we'll look at creation in the Old Testament in Genesis. And then second, we'll connect this to the New Testament in Jesus and Christmas. It's that simple. First, creation in the Old Testament in Genesis. And then second, creation in Jesus and Christmas in the New Testament. But with all that said, let's now begin our time here in Genesis 1 and see creation in the Old Testament. And for this, we will be starting in the first verse of the Bible. And yet, even before I read this, I know you might be sitting there and thinking, this is about as basic as it gets. (laughs) 
But, but I hope to show you that, yes, and it is true that in one sense, what we're about to read is very basic, but then also, in an important sense, what the Bible teaches us about creation in Genesis 1 is quite profound and has really big implications. And so let's now look down at Genesis 1-1, reading it, and we'll see some things about it. So Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So as we just said, it's true. I'm sure you're feeling it. That seems quite basic. But then on the other hand, notice here just two things that were revolutionary back then when this was written, and which, if we really believe them, are still quite revolutionary today. And first, notice the first few words in our Bibles are those words, in the beginning, in the beginning. And this is significant because while we take those words for granted, I hope you know that for many, many years, and perhaps for the majority of history outside of the Judean Christian influence, many people didn't believe that there was a beginning to the universe like this. Instead, many cultures and people and religions believed the universe in itself was eternal, that the universe just always was here. And if you look into it, this is true of even many scientific theories until really recently. And, and so saying that there was actually beginning to all of this was revolutionary. And, and it still is today, but today it's revolutionary not because people don't believe it, but instead, because today almost everyone does believe it. <laughs> and this is because modern scientists now with cosmological discoveries like the universe expanding and such, now they have to say that there is a beginning, there was a beginning to this all, which is huge proof of what Genesis 1-1 has always said. <laughs> so that's the first thing. But then second, notice also that what's assumed here isn't just a beginning, but at the beginning, there's God. Now again, I know that sounds so obvious, but this also was revolutionary, and that's because although we're used to hearing Genesis 1, what sets this creation story in Genesis 1 apart from other religious creation-like stories that existed back then was that here a single God created, and he did so out of nothing. And when you look into it, it's actually really amazing how uncommon that idea was. Again, we're so used to hearing it because of the influence of the Bible, but in most religions and creation stories outside of the Bible, there were usually multiple gods. And then these gods didn't create the universe out of nothing. Instead, it was usually assumed that there was already just stuff, that the universe already existed, and then these gods just basically formed and molded this universe out of what was already there. But not here in Genesis 1.1. Right away, before anything, there's this one God, and out of nothing, he creates everything. Which is what the phrase, the heavens and the earth, means. And so, and so I know that's basic, but more than we usually know, Genesis 1-1 is actually pretty profound. All because it tells us that there was a beginning to this story, and because it gives us the ultimate personal cause to everything we see today, God himself. And this is especially pertinent to all of us sitting here this morning, because we do live in a culture where we are so often told, whether explicitly in teachings or implicitly in, in movies and TV shows and how we're advertised to or social media, where we're so often told that we in this universe we live in are just products of time and chance. But that's just not true. And yet even for us Christians, we can forget this. And so that's why we need Genesis 1-1. That's why we need to be reminded of this because the truth is that the, at the very beginning of history, 
and the story of our universe and the story of creation is this. God himself there creating everything out of nothing. That's what happened in creation. But now before we go and see how this relates to Christmas and Jesus, now we'll go forward a little bit in Genesis 1 as was read in the scripture reading and we'll see a hint here why God created all this. And for this now we'll be in Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28. So maybe a page in your Bibles, go ahead to Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28. And to see what we're going to see here, we're going to read these verses one at a time and we'll see how they build on each other to give us a hint here in Genesis 1 as to why God created everything. So we'll start with just verse 26. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, so here, we're seeing the specifics of God creating humanity. And right away, in verse 26, we hear this, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And this is unique, because thus far in Genesis chapter 1, the heavens and the earth have been described with all these things mainly, right? The sky, the sun, and the moon, the dry land, and then animals and such. But now here, in verse 26, we see something different. Because here, we get God telling us that now what he's doing is he's placing in this universe not just created things and animals, but images of himself, likenesses of himself. So that's verse 26, which then leads to verse 27. So look down at your Bibles. So God created man or human, humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So, so now here we get a more specific Poetic description of what God means by in his image. And what do we see? Well, we see that God created man, which is just the same word for humanity there, in his own image. But then what this looked like is, quote, male and female, he created them. And now this is, this is amazing because this shows us that in God's intention in creation... In verse 26, he intended for part of this creation to image him, to be especially like him. But now, specifically in verse 27 here, what is God going to put in the heavens and the earth to show what he's like? Humanity, yes, but specifically male and female humanity. And, and as a quick side note, this is yet another place where we do see that the Bible was and still is unprecedented in its ancient view of the equality of men and women. Because I really do hope that you know that in other ancient writings and religions, saying something like this really wouldn't happen. And this is because sadly in most ancient societies, women were not treated as equals. And, and this can be seen, for example, even in the traditions of someone revered and loved, like someone like Confucius in the East, who multiple times compared men to heaven to be the higher gender, while women, he said, were of the earth. And, and that was the norm. But then here... In this ancient document, in Genesis chapter 1, which is part of the reason why we know it's inspired, when this is describing literally the very beginning of humanity, male and female are both said to be created equally in God's image. Which means that they are both designed intentionally by God to show forth what he is like. So that's verse 27, but that then leads to verse 28. Verse 28, if you look down at your Bibles. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so now here we see the goal. And at first, we may read this and think, okay, God in creation just wanted humanity to have lots of babies and to fill the earth. But if we think just that, we're missing the point, and especially we're missing the context. Because remember, verse 28 here comes right after verses 26 and 27. And those verses were about how these men and women are images of God. And so that's what sets the stage for verse 28. And so that said, now ask yourself, so in context, why would God want these people to fill this creation, this earth? And if you're tracking, the only answer that really makes sense is so that there'd be more images of God. More male and female pictures of what God is like spread all over the world. That's why he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that then really gives us a hint, just in Genesis 1, about why God created everything. Or to connect it to what we're talking about, this gives us a hint here of why there even is a story of redemption. And why is it? Well, it's because God intended to create in such a way where this universe really does reflect what he's like. This is true of people, of you and I made in his image, but it's also true of the whole creation. And this is confirmed in other places in the Bible, and we can sum all this up simply by saying... God created the world for his glory. And if that sounds different than anything we've been talking about so far, it's probably because that word glory can sound a little confusing. But God's glory is simply who he is put on display. Meaning God's glory is what God is really like as God being displayed. It's his love, his goodness, his liveliness, his joy, his justice being shown. That's the glory of God. And so when the Bible teaches that God created the world for his glory, it doesn't just or even mainly mean that God created all this so he could be praised. There's a truth to that, of course, but instead, it means that this world literally exists because God, before anything was made, because God in all of his amazingness decided to make a creation that reflects who he is, that pictured what he's like. And specifically, he decided to make humanity to uniquely show what he's like. And on this topic, perhaps the best non-Bible book ever written, maybe a book written by the 1700s author Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, and this book is titled, are you ready for this? They had long titles back then. The book is titled, A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. (laughs) But but I bring that up uh, because if you want to tackle a book written in the 1700s, which is only about 100 pages long, but it's really profound, I do encourage you to read it. And you can find a full copy of it in this book by John Piper, God's Passion for His Glory. Full copy of Edwards' book is in here if you do want to tackle it. But I bring that book up because in it, Edwards basically proves, first from philosophy, which is incredible, but then from the Bible alone, he proves that the world exists to display God's glory. And one of the words he uses in the book to describe what this actually means is the word emanation. Emanation. E-M-A-N-A-T-I-O-N. 
And an emanation, you've probably never heard that word, is something that is emanated, which simply means originating from a source and then spreading out. That's all the word emanation means. But, but I bring that up because I actually think that's a really helpful word because it does describe what's really happening in creation. Because we can simply say God created for his glory, but what does that mean? Well, Edwards explains, quote, the glory of God, when spoken of as the supreme and ultimate end of all of God's works, is the emanation and true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. I know it's a lot. Let me read that again. The glory of God, when spoken of as the supreme and ultimate end of all God's works, is the emanation and true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. And so in other words, Edwards is saying that all of creation exists so that God can emanate and externally express who he is. Meaning God has always been God. But then in creation, it's not just that God wanted to make something. Nor is it that he needed to make something. Instead, the Bible teaches that God is so interesting and amazing and beautiful and lovely. And so, he created a world where that could be externalized. Where that could be put on display. Or to say it another way, God is so overflowing with goodness and happiness and joy and love and liveliness that he wanted to make a world where those things could be experienced and felt and seen. And so that's why creation happened. Which leads us to our final verse in the book of Genesis, and this will be verse 31. So look down your Bibles. Genesis 1, verse 31. It's the last verse in this chapter. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so now hopefully this verse makes more sense. And if you've studied Genesis 1 at all, you know that it ends with everything being, quote, very good. And, th and this is a big deal, especially because once again, so many other worldviews and religions say that creation and matter and physical stuff is just bad in itself. But the Christian perspective is that the world in itself is good. Matter is good. Our bodies are good. Sin stains the world absolutely, but what God created is good. But again, I hope this makes a lot more sense after what we just talked about, because now we can really answer why the world is very good like this in Genesis 1. And why is it? Well, it's because this universe is an external expression of God himself. It's, it's like water bursting forth from a fountain. Not that the world is God, but this world is the theater of his glory. It's his canvas where he can put his creativity, his power, his love, his beauty, his goodness on display. And that's then where we were made to fit as well. We were made to be a part of this, to experience and to enjoy this glory of God. And so that's creation in the Old Testament. And of course we could add more to it, but that's where the story of the Bible and the story of this universe really begins with God creating everything, everything perfect and beautiful and lovely and very good, and especially with him creating us, humanity, male and female, in his image. And why? Why did he do all that? Ultimately to show his glory, to fill the earth with his glory. Which now leads us to our second section and Christmas. 
And you may be thinking, okay, now how in the world is that going to connect to Christmas? <laughs> but here's the beautiful thing. We don't have to connect it ourselves. Instead, the apostles in the New Testament a couple times connect creation to Jesus' coming in Christmas. And so for this, we're going to go to two places in the New Testament, two places. So we have God creating everything very good for his glory. But now to see how this relates to Jesus Christ and Christmas, let's first turn to 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 21. 1 Peter 1. Now this will be towards the back of your Bibles, very all the way toward the back of your Bibles. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 21. And you can see the text written in your bulletin as well. And for this, we're going to read these four verses in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 21 first, just to get the context of what Peter's talking about. But then for our purposes this morning, we're going to focus in on just one thing that Peter says in the middle of all of this. This is 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21. We'll read those verses now. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So, so as you can see, Peter here is mainly talking about Jesus' redemption in these four verses, but for our purposes this morning, notice those first few words the inspired Peter Apostle Peter writes to begin verse 20. Talking about Jesus, Peter says, quote, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. <laughs> now, that word foreknown can sound fancy, but in Greek it literally just means known before. And so Jesus was known before, even before the foundation of the world. So, so, so notice for yourself what Peter is saying here. So in this context, he's talking about what Jesus did for salvation. But here, in verse 20 specifically, he starts talking about how this salvation connects to, quote, before the foundation of the world. And so now here, we're in Genesis 1, verse 0, if you will. God hasn't created. He hasn't founded the world yet. Well, before all of that and what's going on, Jesus is known before all that. And think about what this means, because this is basically giving us a glimpse into the very mind of God before creation, because that's literally what Peter is talking about. He's talking about what God knew, meaning what was in God's mind before he founded the world. And, and what did God have in mind? What did God know in Genesis 1 verse 0? Jesus. He had this plan of salvation, the gospel Meaning he had in mind Christmas, how he himself, how Jesus would come here. And he had in mind how he himself, how Jesus would die and rise to bring everything back to himself. Which therefore shows us that this whole plan of God coming at Christmas and the whole plan of the gospel isn't God's plan B. And we know that because that's exactly what Peter's saying here. This wasn't God's plan after he created the world and sin entered. Instead, this was known before the foundation of the world. And this is important because I think so often when we talk about and think about Christmas and the gospel and the story of the Bible, we can tend to think that God created the world good and for his glory, but then... It was messed up, and so God had to scramble to get everything back again. 
And while it is true that sin has infected God's world terribly, as we'll talk about more next week, what's also true is that we must know that none of this took our God by surprise. (laughs) And not only that, but we need to know that in a sense, this literally was his plan all along from even before the beginning of creation. And so that's what's implied here in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. But here then is the biggest point on this this morning for us. And here's how it really connects what we talked about from Genesis earlier. So I know some of that might be new. It might sound strange. But when we think about it, with Genesis covered so far, this actually fits perfectly with everything we've seen. Because remember... We know that God created the world for his glory, meaning as a theater so he could put on display what he's really like. And of course, we see that with the galaxies and the stars and the massive mountains and the millions of animal species and with you and I made in his image. And so that's all created for God's glory. But do you know what shows forth most clearly what God is really actually fully like? Do you know what emanates and externally expresses who God really is more than anything? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the point. The thing that shows who God is like more than anything is that he graciously came to this earth, humbly born as a baby, living a perfect life here amongst those he'd made, then going to the cross, dying for the most undeserving, and then rising again to new life. That, above all else, shows the glory of God. (laughs) Because that's grace, that's love, and that's our God. And so that's our first text on this in the New Testament. Which finally leads us to our last passage together this morning. For this, now turn with me to 2 Timothy 1. If you're in 1 Peter, this will only be about 25 pages to the left in your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 8 through 10 this morning. But we're going to start with just verses 8 and 9. So 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So now you can see that this was the way the apostles thought about creation, because this is very similar to what Peter said. But notice Paul's logic. In verse 8, we're called not to be ashamed of the gospel, And that's because in verse 9, God saved us and called us. And he did so not because of our works. And thus far, that makes a lot of sense. That's the gospel. But then, notice what Paul says to end verse 9. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so now, once again, we're taken back to Genesis 1, verse 0, if you will. This is before the ages began, or literally it says here, before time's eternal, meaning before time in eternity. And what's going on? Well, in 1 Peter, we're told that Jesus was known then. 
But now here in 2 Timothy, we're told that God not only knew this plan of salvation, but he knew those he would save in Christ Jesus. And this is amazing. And we don't have time to cover what that means fully. Instead, for our purposes this morning, all we need to see is once again that as God was creating the universe, as Genesis 1 was happening, this gospel was in his mind. And prominently so. The Father knew he would send his Son on Christmas, that he would live, die, rise, and accomplish the gospel. And he knew that by doing that, he would save his people. As Paul says here in verse 9, this was, quote, his own purpose before creation, before the ages began, also that he might display his grace. Which finally leads us to verse 10. This will be our last verse for the morning. And here we will explicitly see Christmas. So now let's read verse 10. Before the ages began, verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. (laughs) So see for yourself that connection between verse 9 and 10, because this is where creation and Christmas are linked. So first, notice again verse 9. Before the ages began, God had this purpose in mind, and so he created with this purpose in mind. But when did that all come to fruition? Verse 10. And which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And there it is. God created for the purpose of displaying his grace in Christ Jesus. And when did that apex, when did that come to fruition? At the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Or as Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Or as we would say, it started at Christmas. When God himself came born a baby, lived a perfect life, went to that cross, and then, as verse 10 ends with, he, quote, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so that's how creation and Christmas relate. They relate because as God created, he always had Christmas in mind. And and it isn't because he just wanted a beautiful display of gentleness and love, that's true. But it's so much more. Creation and Christmas are so much more. And that's because more than just a picture of gentleness and love, ultimately Christmas is the beginning of the fruition of God's whole plan for creation. Because one last time, God created this world to display his glory. And that again includes the galaxies and the majestic oceans and the massive mountains and the millions of animal species. And it includes human beings wonderfully made in the image of God. But also, and biggest of all, it includes this gospel plan of salvation. That he himself would come. That he'd live, die, rise, and make everything right and good and beautiful again. Especially saving for himself a people who would enjoy him and this creation perfectly restored forever. And so that's our creator God, brothers and sisters. That's why he created. That's why he came on Christmas. And as a result, let's praise him. Let's be thankful we know him. And let's give him all the glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.